Uh, I did a little bit of research on our current royal family. Um, I don't know whether you know this, but if I ever met one of them, I'm not about to meet one of them, this is what I would have to do. So I'll just read you. This is from the like, .gov royal family website. There are no obligatory codes of behaviour when meeting the Queen or a member of the royal family. But many people wish to observe traditional forms. For men, this is a simple neck bow from the head only, whilst women do a small curtsy. Other people prefer simply to shake hands in the usual way. <laughs> on presentation to the Queen, the correct formal address is Your Majesty, and then later on it's Ma'am. For male members of the royal family, the same rules apply, with the title in the first instance being Your Royal Highness, and subsequently Sir. And then other female members of the royal family, the first address is conventionally Your Royal Highness, followed by Ma'am in later conversation. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, because if I were to meet one, I'm pretty sure I'd get it wrong. <laughs> I don't know whether you've ever seen the um, Mr. Bean skit where he meets the Queen. Has anyone seen that? <laughs> Mr. Bean skit where he meets the Queen and he goes to bow and knocks her out just by hitting her in the head. <laughs> I kind of feel that's what I would do. If I were, I'd be so nervous about meeting someone with such authority and power and, and it's a monarch. You'd feel like that's what you're about to do. Now, we're working through a series um, this summer in Psalms, or, uh, as I just said, on, on the king. But we're not just talking about earthly kings, um, we're talking about heavenly kings. And Psalm 99 really is all about how, do we, how, how can we be in God's presence? What are we supposed to do? If we're supposed to give neck bows and curtsy and say, Your Highness, when we meet earthly kings, what, is, what, what, what do we do when we meet the heavenly king? And, and are we supposed, should we be nervous? Are we supposed to be comfortable? Or, or, or is that something that should freak us out? What are we supposed to be like when we meet God? There's no clock there, is there? i just get my phone out and put it there. Um, so I've split this talk into, into two parts. Uh, the first part is, who is God? Very simply. Uh, and the second part is, what does that mean for us? So who is God? And what does that mean for us? It's not three points, which is sad. Um, but hopefully that will, that will make sense. Who is God? What does that mean for us? So we'll get started straight away in this psalm with who is God? Um, and this psalm really is all about holiness. So I've kind of titled this talk, The King Who Is Holy. You can see holiness repeated three times in this psalm. Verse 3, uh, verse 5, and verse 9. The Lord is holy. He is holy. And you can't really miss it. And holiness is a really... I thought it'd be good to start with a little uh, spiel on what holiness is. Holiness is a really significant thing in the Bible. Uh, it's, the, it's the most used description of God. Other things, God is described as lots of things, merciful, loving, justice. But holiness is... God is holy is the thing he's most described as. And holiness is that... Being holy is the only thing that God is described as three times. You'll know, you'll know the sort of, we sing a song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, and that comes from parts of the Bible where it says God is holy, holy, holy. The only thing that's described three times. And I, I thought it would be good just to open it up. What, what do we normally think of when we think of holiness? What, 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 what's, if, you, if you're doing word association and you said holy, what would be the next word? Just some suggestions. Hmm? Grail? The Holy Grail, Monty Python. Not what I was thinking. <laughs> Anything else? 
monasteries, monks, nuns, that sort of thing. Purity. Purity. Yeah. Yeah. Righteousness. That's certainly in this psalm, verse 4. Um, God is a God who loves justice. Purity. That's part of it. I know that when I think of the word holiness or holy, I normally think of some sort of heavenly being with a halo. I don't know if that's just the halo. It sounds like holy. But that, that's kind of the, the image I've got in my mind of, of something that is righteous, something that is morally good. And most of us really think of righteousness and equate that with holiness. But God's holiness is not just righteousness. God being holy is not just a moral capacity. Uh, but biblically, holiness really means separation. Uh, if, uh, you don't need to turn to it, but there are two verses just to sort of show this. Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 25, uh, says, to, this is God speaking, To whom will you compare me, uh, or who is my equal, save the Holy One? So this idea that God is separate, that there is no equal for God. And then in Hosea chapter 11, verse 9, I'll put some bookmarks in because Hosea is quite hard to find. Uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 9, This is God again. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. So holiness really in the Bible means separation. The Hebrew word, uh, I looked it up, I don't really know how to pronounce it, is kedosh, kedosh, uh, which means cut off. God as separate, God as distinct from his people. Right? And obviously... Righteousness is a part of that, and, and, but it's not the whole. Um, so in this light, uh, I've titled this section, Who is God, rather than What is God Like? Because holiness really encompasses God's being. <laughs> holiness is not something that God... It's not like God is holy and God is also merciful and God is also just. Holiness, what God is holy. Um, therefore I titled it Who is God rather than What is He Like does that make sense? Um, and, there, and there are three times in this psalm where God is, set, God, is, God is said to be holy so it'd be good to just look at those three things in turn and what does, that, what, what, what does, what does the holy God look like? so point number one is from verse one and verse two and it's basically this the holy God is king that really actually does make quite a lot of sense for God to be holy, he has to be a king. It's a monarch that is, by definition, separate from their people, isn't it? If you're a monarch, you're not one of the subjects that you're reigning over. Um, it doesn't really work for God to be holy and yet part of his creation and under his own rule. Um, the psalmist makes this really clear in the first three verses when he says that the Lord reigns The Lord sits enthroned, that's both in verse 1, and then verse 3, he is holy. And the hyphen in in the NIV seems to sort of of say, God is holy because of these things. He's holy because he reigns. And these verses are emphasising God as king, God as creator. He's not part of his creation, and it's also not some sort of mighty power struggle that culminated in God being king. Um, we, in doing English Lit at uni, we study uh, a fair bit of classics. We do a lot of like sort of Greek kind of mythology and things. Uh, and in Greek mythology, 
The one who is a god is only a god because he's more powerful than all the other gods. He's just beat them all up. And, they, and, they, and, and it might be the case that some of the other gods get more powerful and usurp him. And, and, and in history, the god is just a cosmic power struggle. That's not the god of Psalm 99. God is not god because he's most powerful. God is god because he's holy and there's no one else like him. There's no one else in creation that could possibly be God because we're created. Does that, does that, does that kind of make sense? That's all in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Um, to sort of illustrate this a little bit more, I was, um, I was in London recently with some friends from uni, uh, and we went to visit Buckingham Palace. Um, one of my friends is an international student, and he, he was quite excited to see Buckingham Palace. And we were stood outside Buckingham Palace, and we were trying to work out how easy it would be to get in. Um, probably slightly stupidly because we were talking quite loudly um, and I won't say any of the ideas that we had because it is recorded and I think they're pretty good um, <laughs> but uh, we were trying to work this out and as I was, as I, we, I was doing some research on my phone of the history of Buckingham Palace uh, and I found out I didn't notice at the time uh, this amazing story you may know this but I'll, I'll read it out to you I think it's quite funny but um, okay, I'll read it out to you it's from Wikipedia at around 7am on the morning of Friday the 9th of July, 1982, Michael Fagan, who was by then a 33-year-old unemployed decorator whose wife had just left him, scaled Buckingham Palace's 14-foot-high perimeter wall, topped with revolving spikes and a barbed wire, and shimmied up a drainpipe before wandering into the Queen's bedroom at about 7.15. By his own account, it was his second time that he'd done this. On his first, he shimmied up the drainpipe, startling a housemaid who called security, when guards reached the scene, Fagan had disappeared, leading them to believe the housemaid was mistaken. He entered the palace through an unlocked window on the roof and spent the next half an hour eating cheddar cheese and crackers and wandering around. He tripped several alarms, but they were faulty. He viewed the royal portraits and had a rest on the throne for a while. He then entered the post room, where Diana, Princess of Wales, had hidden presents for her first son, William. Fagan drank half a bottle of white wine before becoming tired and leaving. No one knew... <laughs> that he'd been in until he did it a second time and then confessed he'd done it the time before. <laughs> when I read this, I thought it was hilarious. And it is either hilarious or terrifying. Um, and and the, reason, the reason it's hilarious um, is because it kind of reminds you of some sort of parody of Mission Impossible, someone shimmying up a drainpipe and sneaking into the Queen's bedroom. Um, or it's terrifying because we hope that our security services at Buckingham Palace are better than they were in 1982. But the reason it's either hilarious or terrifying is because we have a conception that a monarch is holy. A monarch is separate from their people. Someone shouldn't be able to walk in through the front door and go into a monarch's bedroom. They are distinct from their people. Now, I'm not trying to imply here that our current queen or any earthly monarch is holy, but I'm saying that the conception of monarch is something that we, we have as holy separate. And that's point one. The, holy, the God who is holy is king. Point two. The God who is holy is just. This is from verse four. Uh, we know that being king does not mean being good. Uh, one only needs to look through history, not very far, to see that there have been many kings, many monarchs all over the world, who, uh, and many leaders who rule in a way that is very evil. There are monarchs who are selfish. There are monarchs who rule in a way that hurt their creation. There's one, one of the fascinating things to study, I think, is the history of sort of medieval like, kingly succession 
in which it is just a sort of power struggle between families wanting more power. Uh, But that's not the case with God. If you read verse 4, we see that the king, God, is mighty. And he loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. So God is a God of justice. God is a God who establishes laws, and his laws are good. He he is not a God who is sort of ambivalent towards his his kingdom. He's a God who, 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 who sets things up for his kingdom to work. Now, we don't need to be told to, that we love justice, do we? Uh, you only need to see uh, sort of what kids say um, when you give one something and not the other. It's not fair. That is, that's on the lips of every, every child. That, 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 and, and it is that sense of justice that we, that we have in our lives. And these verses really relate to the moral aspect of God's holiness that we sort of thought about earlier with purity. The moral aspect is not the entirety of God's holiness, but it's part of it. And God is, in his being, righteous. He doesn't just happen to be righteous. He is righteous. God cannot establish any laws that are not righteous. The things that God... God, The laws really happen because God is holy. Does that kind of make sense? So the first thing is we get that the Lord is king... And the second thing we get is that the Lord is just. And they're both part of the fact that God is a holy, distinct, separate God. And these verses really relate to God's law. They emphasise that God's law is good, that God's law is righteous, that God's law is perfect, that God's law is part of his very being, and we're supposed to worship him for this. Um, The final thing, which is implicit in verse and uh, more explicit in verse 8 is that the holy God the God who is holy is not just king is not just just he's also wrathful Um, what this really means is that God is not apathetic towards our human behaviour it would be a crazy world that we lived in wouldn't it if we had a legal system of laws but no punishment or you were part of a family where you were told this is what to do, but there was nothing, no, no problems if you did it wrong. Um, and that is the same with God, but it's more so with God. God doesn't just set up laws and then follow through with them because he set those laws up. God follows through with those laws. He's wrathful because in his very being he is holy. Because God is holy and justice and righteousness are part of his holiness, when his creation doesn't display justice and righteousness, they break God's good and perfect law. And that matters to God. It more than just matters. We can't be in God's presence because he's holy. There's no, there's no sense in which God can say, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll put that sin over there and, and, and you're fine. When we do things that are not following God's law, there, there can be no relationship between God who is holy and us who are not. Um, so God is a God of wrath. Uh, I came across a, an illustration online about God's wrath. Um, you'll all know the, the, sort of, the current fascination with superhero movies, right? They're, they're all over the place. I'm kind of worried about, just because of the sheer amount of animals in the world, the sheer amount of movies that we might make about superheroes. <laughs> There's just loads. 
Um, and there's loads and loads of superhero movies. And one of the one of the big known ones I've never watched it is the Avengers. Um, and you have the Incredible Hulk. Um, and he's a character who, at points in the film, gets very, very angry and wrathful uh, and, and sweeps aside people and buildings. He's huge uh, and, and, and destroys things. And you might think that that, um, that that wrath is terrifying. But don't worry, because the Hulk is on our side. He's sweeping away the, the bad guys. He's not sweeping away the good guys. Actually, that's a terrible illustration. That's what I realised. That's not what God's wrath is like at all. God's wrath is not just, God is really angry, but don't worry, he's on your side. God's wrath is, is very much dealing with things that are wrong in the world, sin. And if you're sinful, then God is not on your side, because God is holy. Um, so that's from verse 1 to verse sort of 4. Um, in verse 8, we see... I'll come to verse 8 uh, a little bit later, but we see at the end of verse 8 that God is a punisher of people's misdeeds. Um, so we see here that God is a God who is holy, and that holiness involves God being king, he reigns. That holiness involves God being just and establishing laws that are good for the benefit of his creation. And that involves God dealing with and punishing and being wrathful for when those laws are not upheld. And that is all part of who God is, his being. So what does this mean for us? I'll move on to the, to the second part. Um, well, this, first of all, this psalm is, is very clear. We, sh- we ought to worship God. Um, if you see in uh, verse 2, Great is the Lord in Zion. He's exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Uh, verse 5, exalt the Lord our God. Uh, Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. The whole point of this psalm is to say, worship God because he is holy. And the psalmist is enthusing us to worship God. He's not just saying, might be a good idea. The psalmist is full of, 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 we've got to worship God. He is holy. But straight away, you will notice that that poses a huge problem for us. Uh, As we can see in this psalm, God's holiness in his reign and in his being causes, what does it say in verse 1, the nations to tremble and the earth to shake. This is not a good image, is it? We've already said how God is holy and separate and when God's laws are not upheld, there is some punishment. And we see all of a sudden that this psalm is utterly damning for us. In a sense, this psalm seems to be like almost sarcastic. Worship God because he's holy, but because God's holy, you can't worship God. There's, there's a sense in which God's holiness totally separates us from God and we can't come anywhere near him. We're told elsewhere in the Bible that all people have done things wrong. And a psalm about God's holiness, it seems to be really, really good. And we can easily preach and say, God is holy, God is wonderful, God is majestic, let's worship him. But actually what's going on here is something very deeply, deeply unsettling for people, for mankind. So I sort of return a little bit to the original question, are you sitting comfortably? Well, you start off reading the psalm thinking, yes, definitely. But as you start to grapple with God's holiness as a subject, you realise, well, no, not at all. I'm not sitting comfortably in any way. 
This psalm is a psalm that is supposed to, I think, initially, make us squirm. It's not something that we should go, wow, this is, this is really good, God is holy. Because that doesn't have good consequences for us. Um, flick with me to Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Um, that's the only bit of flicking that we'll do. Um, if you have your Bibles, that would be good. Um, Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah's commission. And, uh, and it is one of the passages which I mentioned earlier, uh, which we get the phrase, holy, 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 from. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah 6, the first part of Isaiah 6, really is the narrative version of this poem. Does that make sense? Uh, Psalm 99 is a poem, a psalm, it's a song, and this is saying exactly the same thing, but in narrative form. Let me just read uh, verse 1 to verse 4 to get a sense of, uh, of this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you see the comparison here? We've got the Lord seated, he's enthroned on a throne. We've got angelic beings, the seraphs, the cherubim. Um, we've got the repetition of holy, holy, holy once again. Uh, we've got this idea that the whole earth, all the nations are aware of God's glory and God's holiness. And again, we've got the sort of evocation of some sort of natural disaster. The temple is shaking, the earth is shaking, as in Psalm 99. And what does Isaiah do? Isaiah sort of has this vision, he sees, uh, he sees God, he sees God's holiness in the same way in all the things that we've just been talking about. He sees God as king, he sees God as just, wrathful. And what's Isaiah's response? Does he jump up and say, God, brilliant, I've got so many problems, I'll bring them to you. That's often the way we think of God. Or does he, as Psalm 99 might suggest, start praising God? That would seem to be a legitimate response of Isaiah. No, he doesn't do either of those things. Verse 5, Isaiah, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah sees God. Isaiah sees God's holiness. God's kingliness, God's reign, God's purity, God's righteousness, God's justice. And, he, and instead of causing, falling on his knees in worship, he falls on his knees in desperation. I am ruined. What can I do? I, I'm seeing God and I am consumed by God's holiness. This is the thrust, really, of, of lots of the Bible and lots of characters, encounters with God. You think of Job at the end of Job, you think of Moses, even Peter in the New Testament says, get away from me Jesus because I, I, I am sinful. People who encounter God are not brought to worship God instantly. They're, caught, they're, they're despairing because they know their sin separates them from God. 
Um, and, and this is really the question on the lips of this psalm. How can we possibly worship a God who is holy? How can we possibly even think of coming to God? How can we be in God's presence? We started by thinking about being in the presence of, a, of, a, of, a, of an earthly monarch and all the things we might have to do. This is far more unsettling. The, the Bible talks about being consumed in the presence of God's holiness. So I'll sort of return to the original question. Are you sitting comfortably? I hope you are literally sitting uncomfortably. I hope that hasn't changed. But I hope in a sense that you, you get what this psalm is trying to do and that you aren't sitting comfortably. This is not a psalm that, that encourages us to sit comfortably. Because of God's holiness, that has serious, serious problems for us. Thankfully, though, the psalm doesn't end at verse 4. That would be a, a, a good psalm, but it would be a difficult psalm to preach because we'd all go home now. Um, the psalm continues. And the answer to the question of how we as sinners can worship a holy God really lies in verse 5. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's understood by the location in which we worship God. The psalmist tells us in verse 5 that we worship God at his footstool. Um, you probably didn't notice that. I don't think I noticed it on the first time, 20 times of reading it. But um, that, that, that is what the psalmist says. And footstool can mean a variety of different things in the Bible. It can obviously just literally mean worshipping God at his feet, as in bowed down, that's kind of the normal place where someone would worship someone. Uh, it could also mean the world, creation, as in God is king and the world is under him, the world is his footstool. Uh, but it's more likely, I mean those things are part of it, certainly, but it's more likely that footstool means something much, much more. Uh, most commentators seem to say, and I think this is true, that the psalmist is deliberately evoking the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the Ark was a, was, a, was a box that was kept um, in, in the temple, in the most holy of holies, and the idea was it was the place where God dwells. Uh, and there are a few things in this psalm which would imply that the psalmist has the Ark of the Covenant in his mind. The, on, the, on top of the Ark was the cherubim, where God was supposed to dwell. This was an earthly picture of what was going on in heaven. And if you look at verse 1, we see God sitting enthroned between the cherubim. Um, the Ark was also, the, the Ark wasn't empty. The Ark was the place where the Ten Commandments were kept. Um, it's, and, and the Ten Commandments emphasise God's justice, God's laws, God's equity, um, which is what verse 4 is talking about. Uh, there are other references to the Ark of the Covenant as the footstool. David in 1 Chronicles 28-2 makes that reference. Um, and it seems to be that the psalmist is deliberately bringing in the Ark here. And ultimately, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's holiness. That's what it's all about. Um, one, in, in the words of a sort of famous popular meme, one cannot simply walk up to the Ark of the Covenant. That is, that is a big deal in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant uh, was approached once a year by one man, the high priest, after various ritual washing and ceremonial stuff. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't kept in your kitchen. The Ark of the Covenant was, it was kept hidden away. It's supposed to symbolise God's dwelling with us, but God's holiness. God was separate. Um, so the link seems to be clear here that the psalmist is talking about the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark also 
quite significantly emphasises God's mercy and God's forgiveness. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a a covering, which is is commonly known uh, as the mercy seat. Um, And what happened there was that the priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal to atone for the people's sins. That was was what what would happen. Um, And and quite literally, this this is a visual picture. The Ark of the Covenant is here. This is supposed to be where God dwells. We're here. God is holy. We're far apart from God. We do things wrong and are not coming into God's presence. But there's something in between, and that is the blood of this sacrificial animal. Now, the Israelites knew that this was a picture. The Israelites knew um, that this was, this was sort of uh, saying something about the things they do wrong and forgiveness. Uh, but we know that this is not the, not the forgiveness of sins, that this didn't do anything at the time. We know the full story. We know from the rest of the Bible, the Gospels, that the blood of the Lamb does nothing. And we know that the Ark of the Covenant doesn't exist. That's the whole, well, it does exist, but it doesn't, we don't know where it is now. That's the whole sort of premise of Indiana Jones. Uh, and we're not slaughtering any animals. This is because the blood that comes between the Ark and us refers to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we've been talking all, all, all this time about God's holiness, God's separation, God's all-consuming holiness in, 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 in the face of our sin. And in the light of that, doesn't the incarnation, God becoming a man, seem all the more incredible? How can God himself, in his holiness, humble himself, become a man, dwell among us? Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, And he lived a life that we couldn't, honouring God in perfect holiness, upholding all of the loving justice and equity and and fairness and and righteousness, and then died the death that we deserve as a sinner. When God looks on Jesus, he sees the sins of the world on Jesus. And I think that you could say that Jesus could have fallen to his knees and cried, woe is me, I am ruined. Because Jesus was, in fact he does, he cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when God looks on us, he sees Christ's righteousness. This means we can stand in God's presence and are not consumed. And that's what this verse is talking about in verse 5 when it says, worship at his footstool. It's saying the only way we can worship God is at, is at his footstool, is at the ark, is, at, is through Christ's blood. We cannot possibly hope to come anywhere near God and be in God's presence and, and, and see God's holiness unless we come through Christ. And if, you, and if we turn back um, to Isaiah chapter 6, I, I, I missed out a verse, it's the best one it deliberately um, verse 5 after all sorry not verse 5 verse 5 Isaiah is on the floor he's, he's ruined and verse 6 we get then one of the seraphs flew to me that's Isaiah with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar with it he touched my mouth and said see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for Isn't that beautiful? You get this picture of Isaiah just absolutely blinded by God's holiness. And yet, somehow, 
God is able to say, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah is ultimately not consumed, destroyed. And that is only possible by Jesus' death on the cross. That is only possible um, by Jesus' death on the cross. Um, and now back in Psalm 99, we've only done half of it so far. It's not gone well. Uh, I am nearly done. Back in Psalm 99, verses 6 to 9 now make a lot of sense. We see that Moses, Aaron and Samuel are the three Old Testament figures. I'm not going to talk too much about them and what, who they are and what they do, but they're calling on the Lord. And incredibly, he answers them. We've just heard about God's holiness and the nations trembling and the earth shaking and God being exalted over all of the nations and, and his great and awesome and glorious name. And yet these three random guys in the Old Testament call on God and he answers them. He speaks to them. We get um, verse 8, which really is the, the summary of, 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 of this whole psalm. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, that verse would be completely contradictory, would it not? It's totally paradoxical. But when we understood that our sins are dealt with, that our misdeeds are dealt with in Jesus Christ, we see that's not a paradox at all. Actually, Christ has taken the things that we've done wrong and we have taken and clothed in Christ's righteousness and are able to stand. There's a a good quote that I read as I was preparing which just said that um, God's vengeance for sin does not prevent his forgiveness of sin and his forgiveness of sin does not prevent him from taking vengeance. Uh, I think that's brilliant. I think that is really the point here. God is a completely, totally holy God. And yet, by his grace in what Christ has done on the cross, even though we've done things wrong, we are not a people that are consumed. So, are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> that's how I started. That's how, that was the little bit in the middle. I hope now that the answer is absolutely yes. When, I, when, when we sang, we sang earlier um, the, the Wesley line, Bold I approach the eternal throne through, and claim the crown through Christ my own. That is, that, that is it. Bold we can approach God. Um, but in another sense, I, I, I actually hope that, um, that the answer is no to are you sitting comfortably. I hope that you're not sitting comfortably, that you're itching in your seat to worship God. <laughs> That's the point of this psalm, isn't it? Uh, one writer says that when it says the nations tremble, some people will tremble with absolute fear because of God's holiness, but others will tremble with excitement. And those who are trembling with excitement are the ones who are coming to God and worshipping him at his footstool. And I hope that you're wanting to dance, sing and rejoice because God is holy. The psalmist isn't actually mocking us or being sarcastic and saying God is holy, worship him, but if you try and worship him you're going to die. The psalmist is actually saying by the footstool, by what Christ has done, we can worship him as we were made to do. Let's do it. So, I, in a sort of weird way, I hope that you're not sitting completely. I hope you are absolutely itching to, to worship God. Um, so, this, I titled this section. What time is it? I titled this section. What does this mean for us? Um, and I just have a couple of points of application to finish. Um, if, 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 if you're not a Christian, um, then you should know that this psalm is deeply un- unsettling. You should know that this is a big, big problem for people. 
We don't want to be a church that makes people feel uncomfortable. We want to serve nice tea and nice coffee and be really welcoming and do lovely things. But we don't want to mince around with what the Bible says. And we cannot be a church that preaches, everything's okay, God really likes you, have a nice week. That, that, that we simply cannot preach those things. This, this is a psalm that if you understand God's holiness, this makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes me, I've been challenged as I've read it, I often come to God and pour out my problems and my heart to God with no reflection on God's holiness. Um, I, I hope you leave today, and I hope you understand what I'm saying, yeah, I hope you leave today full of nice coffee and biscuits, but deeply unsettled by God's holiness. In fact, more than that, I hope you leave today trembling with excitement because you've realised just how holy God is, just how broken we are, and what an incredible thing God has done in Christ to mean that we can be in his presence. Um, If you are a Christian, uh, then I want to say three things. I finally have three points. Um, the, The number one is know that God is holy and come to God with that knowledge. So often as Christians we come to God flippantly. Or we come to God thinking God is there to deal with all my problems. God is, uh, God is a father, God is love, God is forgiving, God is lovely. And, 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 and so often we have not taken into consideration God's holiness. That actually if it wasn't for Christ we wouldn't be coming anywhere near God. So number one, know that God is holy and that is a big problem. Number two, worship God. Worship God and know that even though he's holy, and even though we're not holy at all, he's made it possible for us to have a relationship with him. Uh, And that is immensely wonderful. Worship him without despair and give him the glory. And finally, um, be holy. This psalm is not about the holiness of people. This is about God's holiness. But verse 7 seems to imply... Um, at the end of the set, he spoke to them from the pillar of cloud they kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them it is possible by God's grace for us to live in a way that does honour God it is possible for us to keep his statutes and decrees he gave them so do it that's a good thing do it because not because we have to but because we want to as part of our worship um, whoops. we're going we're gonna to sing now it's worth uh, remembering that Psalm 99 is a song. Um, it's, it's not really, it's not supposed to be a sermon, and we're doing it a little bit of an injustice preaching it. Um, we're supposed to sing it. Um, so let's sing and worship God, for he is holy and made it possible for us to worship him defa- despite the fact that we are not. <laughs>